that there would come a king from David's line who would sit on the throne in Jerusalem and rule over all the nations of the earth and bring back perfection the way God had created it to be. All these joyful Jewish saints who heard or saw Jesus born, they knew the promises of the prophets that the Messiah would come The Messiah would satisfy the righteousness of God. The Messiah would be a suffering servant to satisfy the righteousness of God in his own sacrificial death. The prophets predicted that that one who satisfied God would return and would usher in the eternal kingdom. That baby, Jesus, can you imagine after hearing all of that, century after century after century, and then you See him? He was here? In other words, all of these people who rejoice so greatly in seeing the birth of Christ, they knew what kind of wealth, real wealth, was actually found through that little child. That's why they rejoiced with such exhilaration. They knew the true wealth that Christmas displayed. And I think we all tend to lose sight of how much wealth is really ours in Christ. So this morning and this afternoon, I want us to reconsider the wealth of Christmas blessing. What sort of response that wealth should elicit from us. That's what I want us to look at. And we'll begin this morning and we'll finish it this afternoon in our our final service, Christmas Eve service. And so to do that, I want us to turn to one single sentence in the Bible. And that's what was read for you, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14. It's one single sentence in the Greek New Testament, 202 words long, long winded Paul. I love that man. One single sentence that actually unfolds for us. There's a lot of places we could look at, but one sentence that really unfolds how much wealth we have in Christ, in Christmas. We're not going to do a deep dive into this passage. It is immensely dense, immensely dense. We could spend a long time, I, I hope one day to spend a long time in this passage. It is theologically profound. But I want us to meditate enough so that when we embark on this Christmas season, we're not thinking just about babies and mangers and shepherds and wise men and all that the biblical text tells us and all the family and friends, the food, the enjoyment we will all have. And I do hope that that is a wonderfully enjoyable time for you. But I I hope that in the midst of that, your mind is dwelling back on the wealth of blessing that we have in the person of Jesus Christ. Nothing else really matters when you put it in comparison to the the immense, unfathomable wealth that we have in the blessing of Christ. Just noticed a few highlights to set the scene. The substance of this passage is about what it means to be in Christ. In fact, if you follow that idea from verse 3 through verse 14, really through the whole book, but just in these verses we're looking at, and follow that idea of being in Christ, it is amazing. It's repetitious throughout the passage. I mean, look at verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. 
Notice the phrase, in Christ. Verse four, he chose us in him. Verse five, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Verse seven, in him we have redemption through his blood. Verse nine, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention which he purposed, notice it again, in him. With a view, verse 10, to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times that is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on earth, in him also we have obtained an inheritance. Notice verse 12, to the end that we who were the first to hope in in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. What's the first phrase of verse 13? In him, you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, you believed and you were sealed in him. I mean, the substance of this passage is all about what it means to be in Christ. That means this is all about what Christmas was about. The Christ came. What does it mean to be in Christ? This passage tells us. That's the substance of the passage. Now the theme of the passage you see in verse three, it's all about the blessing that comes from being in Christ. You see it in verse three? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Three times. That idea of blessing is rehearsed in that one verse. These are the blessings of what it means to be in Christ. And notice also that these blessings are spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. That is spiritual as opposed to physical. Heavenly places as opposed to just earthly places, which makes some people say, ah, well, that's why there's such a detach here. You talk about all these spiritual things that's so far removed from the physical world. No, 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 not at all, not at all. In fact, this phrase, the heavenly places, it's a key theme throughout the book of Ephesians. You're going to find it in chapter 1, verse 3 that we just read. You'll also find it down in verse 20. He brought about in Christ, there's that in Christ again, when he raised him from the dead, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So where is Christ now? He's in the heavenly places. That's where all of our spiritual blessings are. Chapter 2, verse 6 He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. So we're even seated in our salvation in the heavenly places in Christ. Chapter 3, verse 10, it's mentioned again. So that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities where? In the heavenly places. What's interesting is in the first three chapters... We see all of what it means to be in Christ and have this massive amount of blessing that exists for us in the heavenly places. You say, well, so does that mean I have to wait till I get to heaven to enjoy those? Not at all. The whole point of the book of Ephesians is that everything God has given you in blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, you use now in the here and now throughout all the relationships of your life. In fact, that's how the book of Ephesians breaks down. The first three chapters is a rehearsal of our spiritual blessings in Christ. But you get to chapters four, five, and six, and it rehearses all of the temporal, earthly relationships that we have and the challenges we have, which means this. The point of the book is, Look at how much blessing you have in Christ that's given you in the heavenly places that you are to dip into and draw upon now to know how you are to relate in all of the challenges of your earthly life right now. You have heaven 
and the wealth of heaven at your disposal in Christ to deal with all of your relationships. That's profound, isn't it? We have everything necessary to live a spiritually enriched, powerful life now because we are in Christ. Not only is the theme about the blessings of being in Christ the emphasis whenever, within all of this passage that we're looking at in Ephesians 1, it's not just about blessings and being in Christ and having the wealth of heaven, but it, there's another emphasis here. And it's on the actual wealth and lavishness and degree of blessing that we have. It's one thing if God were just to rehearse for us, here's what you have and it should leave you astounded. But when he then backs up and says, let me tell you how deep this is, how wide this is, how high this is, how lavish this is, it's astounding. Like verse four, we have every spiritual blessing, not some, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In verse five, he rehearses not just the intention of God, but the kind intention of God. Verse six, he freely bestowed on us these blessings in the beloved. There's no cost to it, just freely. And verse eight, he lavished them on us. Verse nine, according to the kind intention. He didn't just have a purpose, it was a kind and good and gracious intention. Verse 10, he takes the fullness of the times, the summing up of all things in heaven and earth. You can't get bigger than this. You can't get deeper than this. Verse 11, he works out how many things according to the counsel of his will? All things, everything. In verse 14, he rehearses that we have an immense inheritance. Do you see? This is all about what it means to be in Christ. The blessings that we have in Christ in the spiritual world that help us now in the physical world and how lavish and deep and broad these great blessings are. But not only is the theme about the wealth of the blessing of being in Christ, it's also a demonstration of how the entire Godhead is involved in giving us this wealth of spiritual blessing. It is the Father who has chosen us. It is the Son who has forgiven us. It is the Spirit who has sealed us. The entire Trinity is involved in pouring out on us a wealth of spiritual blessing. Being in Christ is the entire theme of Christmas. Do you know why they rejoiced so much when they saw the baby? So what we find in these verses is a profound description of the wealth of blessing that comes to us because of Christmas. So with me just for a few moments, I want you to rehearse with me this morning and we'll carry it on this afternoon, four different blessings that come to us because of Christmas. What are the blessings that are enumerated here that come to us because of Christmas? We'll look at two this morning. We'll finish it up this afternoon when we come back for our candlelight service. Four different blessings. You ready for the first? We have been chosen. You said, oh no, you're gonna bring controversy to Christmas? No, not me. There's no controversy here. Why do you laugh like that? 
No, there's no controversy. This is profound, stabilizing joy that comes when you realize what God has done. Look again at verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Now I recognize that verse 4 is a complex, a theologically complex, often controversial idea and not one that we often associate with quote unquote Christmas blessings. But I am here to tell you when those people who rejoice so much to see that baby saw him and he was born in here, this is one of the fundamental truths from the beginning of scripture up to that point that would have exploded in their mind. Had God really chosen his people? The Messiah was there to prove it, to show it, to demonstrate it. We've been chosen. He said, well... Well, chosen, that sounds so selective. So selective, yes, and that's what should be so thrilling to you. In fact, this word chosen is found some 20 times in the New Testament. It can refer to just general choices that people make as they go through life. Like Mary and Martha, you remember that? Martha serving, working herself, and Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to him, Luke chapter 10. And Martha's a little upset. Why isn't Mary coming? And you, you know what Jesus said? She has chosen. There were many things she could have done. She chose, just a general choice. She chose what is best. The word is used in Luke fourteen seven to describe guests at a wedding feast who were picking out seats. Many seats to pick out, many seats to choose. They were picking their, their seat. Acts chapter 6 verse 5, talking about the congregation selecting from among the whole congregation, selecting seven different men to serve the widows who needed to be served in Acts 6. This word is used to describe Jesus selecting 12 men to be his apostles from among all the disciples. He selected 12 Jesus is even called by the Father, my chosen one, Luke 9, 35. And Christians, you know a, a synonym for the word Christian is the word elect, selected. That's a word God uses to describe Christians. You are chosen, selected by God. The elect whom he chose, Mark 13, 20. 1 Corinthians 1, 27 and 28 says, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world <clears throat> to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not so that he might nullify the things that are. Now, I go through all of that to just definitive, definitively point out that God's choice can mean nothing less than God's sovereign selection. 
The us, he chose us in Christ. The us of God's choice is all of those who are, in this passage, in Christ. Why are you in Christ? Because God chose you to be in Christ. Before you chose to follow Christ, and make no mistake, you did make a decision. You did choose. Of course you did. You could probably remember how you chose to follow the Lord. We're not going to deny that. But before you chose to follow Christ, God chose you to be in Christ. Your choice, my choice, is because of his. Which means, if you genuinely believe in Jesus Christ and you persist in that belief in Jesus Christ and you don't turn from him, you actually demonstrate God's choice. In fact, we could put it this way, our choices reveal his turning from sin, choosing to follow Christ, running after him in faith. That's what we're called to do. It is our calling. God called us. That's just another way to say that we've been chosen. And when you do that, when you follow your calling, you have confidence. You have confidence. God has chosen you. Listen, you don't, you don't have to first find out, am I chosen, then I'll believe that's not how it works. God never turns away. Listen to me carefully. God never turns away anyone who longs to and desires to come to Christ. It's not how the Bible talks about this. He doesn't say, well, you weren't chosen, so you can't come. I know you want to, but I'm not going to let you. He never does that. Anyone who longs to come to Christ, he embraces why would anyone long to come to him? Because he's chosen them. His choice is what we are convinced of after we believe, by the way. His choice of us to believe happened well before we ever believed. When did it happen? According to verse 4, he chose us when? Before the foundation of the world. Before Genesis 1-1, God had chosen in Christ, there was some inter-Trinitarian fellowship that had already determined and chosen those who were in Christ. And it wasn't based on merit. There wasn't anybody to do anything good or bad. There wasn't any creation. It wasn't based on heritage. It wasn't based on origin. Not deeds done, good, bad, religiousness, irreligiosity, none of that. Before anyone had done anything good or bad, the Trinity had chosen and chosen to what? What does the text say? Chosen before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. These are two terms to describe offerings that were selected as worthy of being given to God. What kind of offering does God deserve to come before him? Would he accept well, we know from the Old Testament in the sacrificial system, we know what kind of offerings were brought to him. Those that had no blemish, those that were specific, the firstborn brought to God, had to be completely devoted to God. It wasn't used for any other purpose and it had to have absolute perfection because that's what God was worthy of. What did God cho choose us to be? 
Holy means devoted to God, completely devoted. He chose us to be completely devoted to him. Blameless means completely acceptable. Think about that. He chose us to be completely devoted to him and absolutely acceptable to him. Well, why is that necessary? Look at chapter 2 for a moment. Just look across the page at chapter 2. Why did he have to do this? Verse 1, chapter 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them too, we too, all, all of us, formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. What does that mean? If you're dead, you have no spiritual life. There is no spiritual stimulation. There is no ability to come to God. You cannot bring yourself to God. You're dead. In fact, you're not only dead, you're enslaved in your death. You can't get out of it. If he doesn't choose, we never would choose him. You do understand that. We wouldn't want to. Nothing in us would compel us to do that because we're full of spiritual deadness. Talk with any Christian who really understands their salvation and you're going to find no Christian ever says of themselves, I did this. No Christian says, I saved myself. I accomplished this. I deserve to be saved. If you find a Christian like that, you probably don't have a Christian. (laughs) No one looks at, at themselves and says, no, I know they don't deserve it, but I do. Not when you know who you are and you know who God is, and then you find yourself in Christ. You're stunned. I'm here because he he did this. It humbles you. It humbles you. God did this. He accomplished all of it. I couldn't do any of this. I believe today because of him. You know, it would be one thing if we just stopped and we, we said, that, that's absolutely profound that God would choose us when we were enemies, sinful, dead, trespassers. But it doesn't stop there. Do you see verse 5? In love, he also predestined us to what? Adoption as sons. He didn't just select us to be saved. He also predestined, it's a really powerful word, proherizo. Horizo means the horizon, the end. Pro meaning before. He, he marked out the end ahead of time. And he marked out the end ahead of time about what? Our adoption as sons. He brought us in as his own family who would inherit everything that belongs to him. He didn't just select you to save you from the consequences of your sin. He selected you to treat you as if you were his own child and give you everything. That is profound. Why did he do that? We're told in verse 5. We were predestined 
to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to what? The kind intention of his will. It was the pleasure of his mind to bring us in as his children, to choose us when we did not deserve to be chosen to be saved. His kindness, his pleasure, it was the joy of his will. Not because we earned it, deserved it, not because you're a better person, a more righteous person than anyone else, not because he looked at you and says, I think you've got more potential than the person sitting next to you. And not because you've had it harder than others have had it. And so you kind of deserve a break. No. You and I and all humanity is far away from God because of sin. And sin has created enmity between us and God. And God knew that before time began and determined for you to be in Christ and to be his child. That is a wealth of blessing that comes from what Christmas brings. Think about the implication of that. What's the implication of being chosen by God? Eternal acceptance is guaranteed. Think about that. Because you are chosen, eternal acceptance is guaranteed. Your acceptance by God here and now today is not based on performance, your image, your status, what you bring to the spiritual table of life. Not at all. Your acceptance by God is guaranteed even if you sin, even if you enter into a season of sin. You just can't find it in yourself to be perfect. The image you want others to have of you, you just never can quite get. But he's chosen you. Your eternal acceptance is guaranteed. And he accepted you not because of you, but in spite of you. He accepted you because he accepted the righteousness of his beloved son on your behalf. Which means if he can't reject his son, he can't reject you. He will never cast you aside because you're chosen. You're his adopted child who has no reason to ever be insecure about anything in your relationship with God because you are chosen. He made you acceptable. He will complete you. What else does it mean? Turn over to chapter four for just a moment. Look at verse one. I want you to see something in in light of being chosen. Paul begins this latter half of the book by talking about us and our relationships with others. And I want you to notice this. He says, therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of what? The calling of, with which you have been called. That's just another way to say you're having been chosen. I want you to live like you are chosen. What does that look like? Verse two, with all what? Humility. That's what being chosen does. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. What? How many times have you thought about the wonderful true blessing of being chosen is really about how you as an individual are pleasing to the Lord now. That's wonderful. 
But did you ever stop to think that the fact that you are chosen in God means you then would treat other chosen people with humble gentleness and kindness and patience? Why? Because that scoundrel sitting next to you is chosen too. (laughs) That failure in your home who's struggling with their faith in Christ, if they're in Christ, they're chosen. So how do you treat them? Not like a failure. Like they're in Christ. Those people who just irritate you all the time in the church. Who are you looking at right now? Who are you thinking of right now? You say, well, we're all looking at you actually. Yeah. <laughs> they're chosen. How do you walk in a manner worthy of your being chosen and called? Humility. There's just one body, one faith, one Lord. We're all in that one body, that one faith, that one, those who are in Christ because he called us into that. That has powerful personal implications of how we see one another. That is a wealth of blessing that comes from being in Christ. If you'd seen that little baby and had that in your mind, you might have been like those shepherds who walked away with exceeding great joy. What had you just been allowed to see? The key to your completion because you've been chosen. But it doesn't stop there, does it? There's a second blessing that we want to look at this morning that comes to us because of Christmas. Secondly, we've not only been chosen, but we have also been redeemed. We have been redeemed. Again, look at verse 7. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times. That is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. Now that can sound like a very complicated set of verses but it really shouldn't. It's very simple. In him, we have redemption. Redemption is the language of indebtedness. It's even the language of slavery. And someone, namely God, has paid whatever was required to remove the indebtedness or provide complete freedom for you. It's what redemption is. Someone has paid what is necessary to free you. Redemption from what? Well, what did we owe? Not only what did we owe, to whom did we owe it? Think about our sin. Our sin against a perfect and eternal God meant we owed an eternal price. The cost has to fit the crime, right? And the punishment, punishment must meet the standard of offense, We deserved a death that is as long-standing as is the nature of the one we sinned against. We deserved a punishment that is as deep as the heights of God's holiness. In other words, 
we owed an unpayable debt. That's what we owed, an unpayable debt. An insurmountable price was required to remove the penalty required of us and deserved by us. And I want you to understand this very carefully. When God gave us salvation, he did not remove the price tag. He did not ignore the price that was required. He doesn't intentionally forget or simply waive the price. God paid the full price. We owed an insurmountable debt and he paid the whole thing. Through what? Well, the text tells us we have redemption through what? His blood. His blood. The blood of Christ paid the insurmountable debt of every person who is his adopted child who had that insurmountable debt. His blood was sufficient for all of that. the blood of the beloved son. That's how he was described at the end of verse six. It was his blood, the beloved son's, God's own son whom he loved like no other paid our debt. The son who shared the eternal nature of the father, his death paid our insurmountable, unpayable debt. The son whose life was as holy as God's own nature and displayed the perfections of God's righteous standards expressed in the law, his life paid for our debt, the son's death, his blood. That is the language of substitutionary sacrifice so prominently displayed in the Old Testament sacrificial system. Displayed in all of that old covenant law and that system of sacrifice that was employed there. Symbolic of this one person, this one final, ultimate, eternally satisfactory sacrifice. His death paid the price. God didn't remove the price. He paid it. That is Christmas. That is Christmas. When people stared into the eyes of that baby, if they knew their Bible, they were staring into the eyes of the suffering servant who would take away the sins of the world. That ought to bring about joy. What did that payment give to us? You see it in verse 7? We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Since the price was paid, there is no more penalty. You ever think about that? There's no more cost. There's nothing else to pay. You you don't have something else you can add to the blood of the eternal son of God. Given It's all been paid. The life of the son was so worthy to the father, so exalted, so eternal, that it would pay for all the sin of each person who he bought. All those whom God adopted as his children, he completely paid the price of all of their sin. Past, actual, future sin covered. That's how worthy the blood of the son is to the father. Total forgiveness. And if you lose sight of how wealthy that total forgiveness is, he adds at the end of that, according to the riches, the wealth of his what? His grace. 
on the basis of how wealthy and valuable his grace is. That's how deep your forgiveness is. His grace is so plenteous that it would cover all the sins ever committed by all those who have ever sinned against him. Take all the sins of all those who've ever sinned against God and the innumerable number number of people whom he's chosen to be his adopted sons and daughters and the wealth of grace exceeds it all. And verse eight, he goes on and says, and he lavished all of that on us. Who's the us? Those who are in Christ. He lavished it. It's so plenteous. It's so superabounding. It just pours over and over on us, this grace does, that forgives us of all of our sin because he paid the price. The degree of hatred, disregard, ambivalence, murder, immorality, injustice, evil intention, selfishness, built up, over time by all those people who've sinned against God. He looks at it and there's so much grace, it's as if they've never sinned. Verses eight and nine and 10 are are absolutely profound in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of his will. It's not just that he paid the price he then said I want you to know my will that I have had hidden in all these times past my will that was hidden in that promise in Genesis chapter 3 who would be the one who would crush the head of the serpent I want you to know him who is the one that would be the blessing to all the nations of the earth through Abraham I want you to know who that is who is the one who would sit on the throne of David who is the one that would bring by his blood in the eternal new covenant and change the world and bring all the nations to himself in his wisdom in his insight he made known to us the mystery of his will well what is the mystery of his will well it is that kind intention which he purposed in Christ what is this? It is how this, this is, verse 10 can be complicated as you read it, but it really isn't when you think carefully about it. With a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times. Think through this. God has been administrating his purposes throughout time till they come to the absolute fullness and completion. That's what began in Genesis and has moved through all of time. He's been administrating all of this. And he sums it up. Everything that he's been doing from Genesis to now to the time when it's all summed up is summed up in who? Christ. It means that Christ is the pinnacle of everything that God has been doing from the beginning of time and he has now opened your mind to see that because he forgave you through the blood of Jesus. It's hard to make sense of what God's been doing over time, isn't it? It's hard to understand all of that, but now he's opened you to see, no, everything's been moving towards the ultimate exaltation of the Son of God, and God has now brought you to know him. That's what redemption is. It's not just taking away your sin. He's also shown you 
who has done it and placed you in him and you now know him. What does that imply for us? What does that imply for us? Turn over to chapter four again. Look down at verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away with you, from you along with all malice. Now, if you think about that for a moment, who has never had any bitterness? You all have. We all have. Who in here has had wrath and anger? We all have. Clamor, slander, malice, terrible thoughts that we've had against each other. Let it all be put away. Why? Be kind to one another, tender-hearted. Notice the next phrase. Forgiving each other just as God in Christ. There's your in Christ phrase again. Forgave, has forgiven you. So you've been forgiven. And you think about the wealth of what that means. So guess what you get to do with all the other numbskulls sitting by you? Forgive them. The same way God in Christ forgave you. That's profound, isn't it? Absolutely profound. What does that mean? It means that eternal forgiveness is guaranteed to us. Because of our redemption, eternal forgiveness is guaranteed and that makes us a forgiving people. We do not hold on to bitterness. Not when you understand the mountain, the eternal mountain of debt that God has forgiven you of through the blood of his son. We cannot hold on to one moment of anger or clamor or malice or say any slanderous thing about anyone else because we're so stunned with the wealth of blessing given to us in the forgiveness God has given through the Son. And what kind of community of people does that make? That's profound, isn't it? Eternal acceptance is guaranteed because we're chosen and so we live humbly with each other. Eternal forgiveness is guaranteed because we're redeemed what does the wealth of Christmas blessing bring to us? One trillion dollars in spending on one day of celebration doesn't even begin to compare to the wealth of blessing God has brought to us in Jesus. Which is the whole point of Christmas, isn't it? So listen, I, I'm, I'm not asking you to go open your presents guilty, you know. Oh, I spent all this and I shouldn't have done that. Enjoy the world that the Lord has given you. Enjoy being generous and gracious and enjoy the relationships and the time. Really enjoy all of that. And at the heart of that joy, don't let all the temporal enjoyments take away from the deeper eternal enjoyments that come because of this season. But like every great infomercial, there's still more. 
And that's what we're going to look at this afternoon. Still more, two more blessings I want us to look at. And not only just two more blessings. But what is the intended response for all of those blessings? That's what we're going to look at this afternoon when we come back together. And that's what really the Lord's table at the end of the service is a beautiful capstone to what we're talking about, isn't it? What do we do? We take the bread, which reminds us that we are the body of Christ because of what he did on the cross for us. And he made us the people that we're going to live patiently with and kindly with and humbly with because he chose us and redeemed us. We're going to take the cup that reminds us that he gave up his blood, his life given in our place so that there's no more transgression ever held against us. And that blood made us a people who lives in a forgiving way with each other. What we're celebrating in the Lord's table is the wealth of Christmas blessing, isn't it? So I want you to think of that as you do. Let's pray together and prepare ourselves to take of the Lord's table this morning.